You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me at the Explorers Podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to talk a moment about this program. I have been doing Explorers for about a year and a half, and I enjoy being able to produce this show. I love history, and I'm having a great time sharing these wonderful stories with you. I also want to say that this is a self-funded project. I pay for everything, hosting, domain name, equipment, software, research books, and anything else that I need. That said, you have probably noticed that there have been a few changes of late, specifically surrounding advertising. I was recently given the opportunity to include ads on the podcast by being part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Now, my listener base is not large, so I'm not talking about a lot of money here, but I am talking about the idea that I can, maybe, pay for my expenses. Beyond that, we shall see. So, going forward, you will be hearing ads on the podcast. I know that it can be a bit intrusive. But the upside is, I hope it helps us produce more episodes of Explorers. So if things go well, it's a win-win. Also, in the next month or so, I will be announcing some changes to the program, primarily dealing with the website and social media accounts. So you can watch, or listen, for those announcements in the near future. But please know that the content and presentation of the show will not change. So that's it. I just wanted to share that with everyone. As always, I appreciate your support. Now... On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to take a look at one of the early explorers that we know of, Pythias of Massalia, the man who circumnavigated Britain 2300 years ago. Now, before we get into Pythias' story, I have a few notes about this upcoming episode. First, Pythias was a Greek who ventured into the land of the Celts and beyond, and thus we are going to have all sorts of Greek and Celtic names, names that I will no doubt butcher. So forgive me in advance for the slaughter of the names of people and places that is about to take place. Second, this stuff took place over 2,000 years ago, so what we know about Pythias and his voyage is limited. Pythias would write a book about his venture, but no copy of that book has survived. Instead, much of what we have are quotes and paraphrasing from other historians, such as Pliny, Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, and Tacitus. This means a lot of what we have about Pythias is guesswork. In fact, some ancient historians question if Pythias ever went on his heralded journey. But all that aside, we just have to go with what we know, and what we know is a pretty amazing story. Third, 
The lack of a first-hand source limits us to the details of Pythias's voyage. I think one of the great things about this podcast is that we sort of live the day-to-day slog with our explorers. But that's not the case with Pythias. This will be more like the episodes we did on Leif Erikson and Eric the Red, or John Cabot. There's still a lot of really cool information here, but we will be light on the minutiae. And as we have seen, that's okay. It just makes things a bit different. So, all that said, let's get to it. The life of Pythias of Massalia, the first man to circumnavigate the island of Britain. Pythias was born around 350 BCE in Massalia, which was on the Mediterranean Sea in what is modern-day France. Today we call it Marseille, and it is the second largest city in France and one of the most important ports in the Mediterranean. However, Pythias and Massalia were not French, and they were not Celts, the tribal people who dominated France at this time. They were Greek. Massalia had been founded by Greek settlers around 600 BCE. It had quickly become the preeminent Greek city in southern Gaul and an important port. Goods came to the city overland from the north and were shipped throughout the Mediterranean by the community's enterprising merchants. Thus, as Pythias came into adulthood, Massalia would have been a free, independent city-state, and it would have been a key trading center in the region. But at this time, many of the Greek colonies in the western Mediterranean were at war with Carthage. This included Massalia, which was allied with its fellow Greeks in Italy and Sicily. Now, this wasn't a single continuous war, but a conflict that flared on and off for decades. Now, that just gives us a little background on the geopolitics of the time, and with that in mind, let us talk a bit about the focus of our podcast, Pythias. In reality, not much is known about the guy. When he began his now-famous voyage, which was around 325 BCE, he would have been around 25, perhaps 30 years old. We really don't know exactly. Pythias was described by one historian, Strabo, as a poor and private individual. Another Greek historian, Polybius, says that Pythias was, quote, an individual without means, end quote. Now, I do want to stop and say something about Strabo and Polybius. These guys were Greek historians writing one and two hundred years after Pythias. Both men provide numerous references to Pythias's writings. However, we should note that neither liked the guy or trusted his works. Strabo calls him an outright liar. I mention this because these guys tend to do whatever they can to discredit Pythias. By calling him poor and a private citizen, it is a way to disparage the guy's reputation and to call into question his accomplishments. With that said, most scholars agree that Pythias likely did go on a journey, and I'm going to accept as fact that he did circumnavigate Britain. Anyhow, Pythias may not have been rich or well-connected, but it is clear that he was an intelligent and educated man. He could read and write, he likely spoke Greek and Celtic, and he had advanced knowledge of the sciences, in particular geography and astronomy. Some of his calculations, particularly his ability to determine his latitude, which is how far north he was, will be quite extraordinary. Also, being that Pythias was from Massalia, a major seaport and trading center, he might have had a background as a mariner, but we don't really know. So, while we don't have all the details about Pythias's early life, I think it's safe to say he was an educated, intelligent young man, and as his voyage will demonstrate, he was resourceful and curious as well. So, what made Pythias want to strike out to the north and find the island of Britain, well, in Pythias's lifetime, Massalia would have been a prosperous trading center. The Greeks had established trading routes into northern Gaul, which is modern-day France, and they loved the stuff that came from the north. It made them lots of money. 
and that brings us to two valued commodities, tin and amber. At this time, tin was mostly brought to the Mediterranean from the north, primarily by Carthaginian merchants based in Spain. Exactly where the tin came from, no one really knew. It is likely that the Greeks had heard tales that it came from the islands in the north. Those islands would prove to be Britain. As for amber, like tin, the Greeks only knew that it came from the lands in the north. In reality, amber would have come from modern-day Denmark, Germany, and Poland. No matter their sources, both tin and amber were prized by the people of the Mediterranean. The merchants of Massalia would have loved to establish new trading routes to acquire these items, but the problem was that no one really understood what was in the north. Maps of the era showed a big blank in the region, and they often just labeled the north as Land of the Celts. So for the Greeks and other Mediterranean peoples, the north was a mystery. But, as we have seen in other podcasts, a mystery can mean profit, if one is bold enough to explore. And that brings us to Pythias. So here was this educated and intelligent guy living in a prosperous port on the coast of the Mediterranean. And at some point, this guy decided to make a journey north, into the lands of the Celts. Perhaps Pythias was ambitious, and he saw financial opportunity. Or maybe someone else saw the opportunity, and commissioned Pythias, who was a first-rate geographer, to undertake the journey. Or, just maybe, the guy was just one of those weird types who was restless and curious. The type of person that just had to look around the next corner, and explore. Again, we don't know Pythias' motivations, but I want to point out one important fact that supports the latter description. When Pythias returns from his epic voyage, he will promptly write a book about his experiences and send it to scholars around the Mediterranean. As we have seen throughout history, this was not the kind of thing a man did if he was exploring for the sake of profit. Pythias wrote his book to let the world know about his discoveries, but if this had been strictly a journey for financial gain, Pythias and those who commissioned him would have kept the details of the journey secret. Think about it. You go and find the sources of a precious metal and a valued jewel. You don't go and tell everyone about it. You keep it secret. Trade routes were classified information in this time period. You don't go write books about them and send them out for the world to see. So, if Pythias went north to find the source of tin and amber for himself, or for others, we can only speculate. But I sort of have this romantic version of this young guy overwhelmed by curiosity setting out to find this stuff just for the sake of exploring. Again, who knows? It might have been a combination of things, as Pythias would have needed funds of some kind to undertake the journey. But no matter what the answer, we know that Pythias was heading north into the lands of the Celts. It will be one of the first epic journeys of discovery ever recorded. So buckle up. Pythias would set off on his journey around 325 BCE. It's not known if he went alone, or if he had someone with him, such as a servant. But I like to think of this lone wolf image of this guy striking out on his own. But we really just don't know. Pythias's journey begins almost immediately with a major question mark, and that is the root of the first leg of his journey. By the way, before we go any further, if you want to see a map of Pythias's journey, you can find one on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Anyhow, regarding the first leg of Pythias's travels. Many historians believe he took a sea route right from the start. He would have sailed along the southern coast of Europe and exited the Mediterranean at the Strait of Gibraltar, which at the time was called the Pillars of Hercules. And now, let me just make a sidestep here. I mean, who changed that name? The Strait of Gibraltar? That's pretty good. But the Pillars of Hercules? That's an awesome name. But I digress. Back to the voyage. 
Many people question this route due to the fact that Carthage, Massalia's enemy, controlled the Pillars of Hercules. Would Pythias have run the risk of trying to slip past the Carthaginian navy? Well, the strait is roughly nine miles wide, a lot of area to protect, so it wouldn't have been impossible to get through. He could have slipped through at night, or perhaps he bribed someone to get through. Ultimately, it might not have been that hard to accomplish. Also, we can't forget that Carthage and Massalia may have been at peace at the time of the voyage, making it completely safe. Again, we just don't know. No matter what, once through the Pillars of Hercules, Pythias would have headed up the western edge of Europe, along what is modern-day Portugal and Spain, eventually reaching the port of Bertigala, which today we call Bordeaux in southwest France. Now, the alternative to traveling through the Pillars of Hercules would have been an overland trek into southern France. The likely route is by heading northwest and following the Garonne River to Bertigala. This was a well-established trade route, and the journey would have been relatively easy. Pythias could have hooked up with one of the many merchants that traveled between the two cities. Either way, let us say that Pythias reached Bertigala. From here, he traveled along the coast of France, reaching Brittany. That's the little pointy finger of France that sticks out on the west coast. As a note, we don't know anything about the ships that Pythias used during his voyage. It is likely that he sailed in chunks, probably hiring local vessels to get him further and further north. Anyway, on the northern side of Brittany, we know that Pythias stopped and took a measurement of his northerly location. This is one of the most fascinating things about Pythias's journey. At various times in his travels, he calculated his latitude using a sundial, and his calculations would prove to be quite accurate. So, from the northern coast of Brittany, the distance across the western edge of the English Channel to Britain is about 100 miles. It is known that there was direct contact between the two lands, so Pythias likely hopped on board a merchant vessel sailing north, or hired a boat to take him to the island he had heard so much about. These would have been sturdy, heavy ships constructed to withstand the rough waters of the area. Pythias would land on the southwest corner of Britain, which is modern-day Cornwall. He called it Valerian. We are not exactly sure where he landed, but many scholars point to the area around modern-day Plymouth. In accomplishing this, Pythias was the first Mediterranean native to reach the island of Britain, a place known to the Greeks only by legend. Pythias would find a tribal culture in Britain. The natives were Celts, with a culture and language similar to their cousins in Gaul. According to the Greek historian Strabo, Pythias called the island Britannic. Other ancient historians used the term Britannia, thought to be derived from Pythias's original observations. Scholars point out that the word Britanni is Celtic for painted ones, possibly a reference to the Celtic practice of tattooing themselves. And while all this is a bit murky, it does appear that Pythias's original naming of the island and its people stuck with other ancient historians, with Britannic and Britannia eventually becoming Britannia. This makes Pythias responsible for the naming of Britain. In Cornwall, Pythias found the Celtic people to be friendly and peaceful. He described the region as heavily populated and filled with kings and princes, a reference to their tribal structure. He records details about the locals' daily lives, describing their thatched cottages and the use of threshing barns by the farmers. He also talks about the favorite alcoholic beverage of the people, mead. I do not think it's hard to imagine he partook in a few drinking sessions with the natives. But most importantly, Pythias witnessed the mining of tin by the locals. He spoke of how they mined the ore, smelt it, and then worked it into pieces the size of knuckle bones. He then said that it was sent to the island of Ictus, which could be accessed from the mainland at low tide. Many believe Ictus to be St. Michael's Mount, on the southern coast of Cornwall. 
Merchants would then come to Ictus to barter for the metal. So Pythias would spend weeks, maybe even months, in the area before heading north by boat. Again, we don't have any description of the boats used by Pythias, but scholars speculate that he probably sailed north in a simple cura, a wooden framed boat in which animal hides and skins were stretched over the frame. These were common to the area. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Pythias's journey north was much like the rest of his travels, slow and steady. He says that he traveled across the whole of Britain, which probably means that he made frequent stops along the coast, investigating and exploring. We can imagine that Pythias, ever curious, traveled where he desired and stopped when things interested him. It's known that Pythias sailed along the coast of Wales and then reached the Isle of Man, an island between England and Ireland in the Irish Sea. Here he took out his sundial and made another calculation as to his current latitude. From the Isle of Man, Pythias continued up the western edge of what is now Scotland. Further and further the man went until he could go no further. Strabo, citing Polybius, says, quote, Pythias asserts that he explored in person the whole northern region of Europe as far as the end of the world. End quote. Scholars tend to think that this means that Pythias reached the most northern point of Britain. It's believed that Pythias landed on the Isle of Lewis, the largest of the Outer Hebrides islands, which are near the northern tip of Scotland. Here he took another calculation with his sundial. Next is the most controversial part of Pythias's journey, his voyage to the land of Thule. Now, as a side note, Thule is spelled T-H-U-L-E, which I would normally say is Thal or something like that. But the interweb says to say Thule, so that's what I'm going with. I just want to point this out in case any of you decide to look up more information about Pythias and get confused because the spelling doesn't match my pronunciation. Anyhow, side note done. From this northern point of Britain, Pythias reports that he sailed six days to a place called Thule. He likely had heard of Thule from the local peoples. The controversial element of his journey is that we don't know where Thule is. Perhaps it was the Shetland Islands, which are only about 100 miles northeast off the tip of Scotland. Or, if you go straight north from Scotland, about 200 miles, you run into the Faroe Islands, a collection of 18 small, rocky, volcanic islands. Another option is Norway, which is about 300 to 350 miles to the west. But a theory that fascinates scholars is the idea that Pythias reached Iceland, which is roughly 800 miles northwest of Scotland. All of this makes for a lot of debate, and the answer is that we really don't know the correct answer. But a few things to take into consideration. First, Pythias described Thule as an island. This may rule out Norway, but we can't say for sure, as Pythias's writings may have been misinterpreted by others. Second, Pythias reported that in the land of Thule, there were no nights during the summer solstice. This would be the midnight sun, a natural phenomenon that occurs in the summer months in places north of the Arctic Circle. 
This would point to a location quite a bit further north than a place like the Shetland Islands. Third, he describes finding the sea near Thule as solidified or congealed, indicating that there was significant ice drift going on. Again, this points to locations closer to the Arctic Circle. All of these things indicate that he went quite far to the north. The midnight sun phenomenon and the drifting ice would have been especially pronounced if he had traveled to Iceland. However, it is hard to believe that Pythias would have dared such a journey. Iceland would have been a legend, even to the people of Britain. And even the Faroe Islands seemed to be a bit of a stretch, as there was no evidence they were settled until around 300 CE. So, in the end, we really just don't know the answer. Pythias went somewhere, it's just hard to really determine exactly where because of the conflicting information. In the end, Pythias would travel far, far north of any place that the Greeks had ever imagined. Now, before we head back to Britain with Pythias, I want to mention some things about the guy. We talked a bit about his use of the sundial, but I want to note some other items, scientific in nature, that seem to fascinate him. First, Pythias appears to have been obsessed with the tides. In the Mediterranean, the tides were not nearly as dramatic as in the Atlantic Ocean, and Pythias talks a great deal about them. He also notes the link between the tides and the phases of the moon. This is something he probably learned from a fisherman or merchant, something unknown to the Greeks, but common knowledge to anyone in Britain. Second, he correctly observed that the North Star was not true north, quite an astute deduction for a man of his time. And third, he made a pretty solid estimate as to the actual size of Britain. All of these things further demonstrate that Pythias was a man fascinated by astronomy, geography, and the oceans, and all of this is a further testament to the man's immense curiosity. So, after his voyage to Thule, Pythias sailed back to Britain and headed down the eastern coast of the island. He would ultimately reach the area of Kent, which is in the southwestern corner of the island, where the famed White Cliffs of Dover exist. Now, at this time, or possibly before he reached Kent, Pythias made another side trek. Remember, Pythias was interested in the source of tin and amber. He had found tin, but what about amber? It's believed that Germanic traders pointed to the west as the source. So, Pythias did as he always did. He got on a ship and sailed in that direction. Pythias would travel along the northern coast of Europe, even coming in contact with the Germanic peoples. He would reach Denmark, maybe going as far as modern-day Copenhagen. From there, it gets a bit murky. Some people believe that he sailed into the Baltic Sea, perhaps going as far as the Vistula River, which is in Poland. How far Pythias actually sailed is unknown, but the further west he went, the more skepticism you'll find from experts. Some of the things from this part of the journey may have been information relayed to him, as opposed to things he actually experienced. We just don't know. Ultimately, Pythias would turn around and begin his journey home. In doing so, he would become the first recorded human to circumnavigate the island of Britain, an extraordinary feat for the time. We don't know the specific route of Pythias's journey home, other than he headed back down the coast of France toward the Mediterranean. He may have slipped back through the Pillars of Hercules and then headed home, or he may have elected to travel overland from the Atlantic coast to Massalia. In the end, Pythias was home. It was a journey that had probably been five to 10,000 miles, depending on his route. It had taken him between two and three years to complete. Pythias would put together a book about his journey. It was called On the Ocean. He sent the book off to other scholars and intellectuals in the Greek world. As we said earlier, this was unique because Pythias was sharing his findings with the world, something people just didn't do if they were more concerned about making money. As for Pythias, after his book, he would disappear from history's radar, never to be heard from again. 
I have read some sources putting his death between 300 and 285 BCE, but that information is tenuous at best. Personally, I like to think that he handed over the details of the tin and amber trade, got a big cash payout as a thank you, and he lived a long, comfortable life. But the more likely thing that happened was that the guy went out exploring again. As we have seen with many explorers, the desire to push into the unknown is hard to deny once they have tasted it. And it is not difficult to imagine that Pythias was sent out on some other great journey, never to come home again. No matter what happened to our Massalian explorer, Pythias's book would keep his name alive. We know it was distributed throughout the Greek world, as Diacarchus, a Greek geographer and student of Aristotle, cites the book in his own works. For the next several hundred years, the ancient geographers, historians, and cartographers would dissect and debate the merits of Pythias's writings. Some, like Polybius and Strabo, would mock Pythias. They find his tales too fantastic and love to point out inconsistencies. Others, such as Diodorus and Pliny, treat him with great respect. The problem with most of these people is that few of them actually had original copies of Pythias's work. Many only saw quotes from earlier writers. That makes all of what we know about Pythias a mystery. Still, for centuries, the writings of Pythias would be the only real knowledge of the lands to the north for the Mediterranean world. These were the first Greek descriptions of Brittany, Britain, and the northern coast of Europe, and they would provide fodder for dreamers who imagined conquering the fabled lands to the north. In the end, the Romans' excursions north under Julius Caesar would reveal the lands of Britain to the Mediterranean world, and thus Pythias's work sort of went by the wayside. No longer was the north a big mysterious place. Unfortunately, the professional attacks on Pythias by various Greek and Roman historians, plus the exploration of the island of Britain, sort of made people dismiss Pythias. And without any surviving copies of his books to really understand what he had done, he and his voyage faded into obscurity. However, historians would revisit Pythias in the late 19th century, gradually putting together his tale from the various sources available. It would reveal a guy who had done something extraordinary. And thus, Pythias's reputation and his deeds would be restored by modern scholars and historians. It is a testament to the man's accomplishments, and today we place Pythias in the pantheon of great explorers, even if he is not known to many. Ultimately, we can say that Pythias was a meticulous and accomplished astronomer and geographer who completed one of the first great journeys of discovery known to man. I have to say that, in my mind, I like Pythias. He seems to have explored for the sake of exploring. I like this idea of an intellectually curious man who headed off into the unknown and lived with the locals, traveled with them, and took in the experience. He did not come to conquer or loot. He seems to have set out to experience the world, which I respect. As I said earlier, Pythias is not the most popular explorer. The reason is that his journey happened so long ago, and what he did didn't impact the world like the voyages of someone like Magellan or Columbus. Still, time has been kind to the guy, and he is getting his due. However, because of the long neglect of the guy's reputation, you will not find many things in this world honoring Pythias, which is not a surprise. But one place that embraces him is his home city, Marseille, France. There you will find a statue of Pythias outside the Palais de la Bourse. I posted a photo of it on our website if you want to see it. It's pretty cool. So, that is it. The story of Pythias of Massalia, one of the great early explorers, and the first man to circumnavigate the island of Britain. I hope you've enjoyed this unique tale. We will see you next time.